You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 31... Wilkes and Liberty, and Tar and Feathers. Last week, we discussed the growing crisis in Boston, but that was not the only issue on London's agenda. In 1768, France invaded the island of Corsica, which had been part of Genoa. The people of Corsica rose up to resist and requested help from Britain. Prime Minister Grafton, more focused on the American colonies, failed to act decisively allowing France to take control of the island. This failure earned Grafton criticism at home for being too weak and encouraging France to become more aggressive. Though nobody had any reason to know it at the time, the failure to keep Corsica independent of France would have great consequences a generation later. The next year, in 1769, a Corsican couple, Carlo and Maria Bonaparte, would give birth to their son Napoleon as a French citizen. There was also domestic uproar in England around the same time. You may recall back in episode 16, I discussed the radical Whig John Wilkes. He had to flee to France in 1763 after attacking the King's speech. Wilkes returned from France in 1768, mostly to escape debts that he had run up in that country. On his return, he ran for Parliament again. He also had to face the consequences of being convicted in absentia for seditious libel. Wilkes both won his election and went to prison. Wilkes remained incredibly popular in his district, among commoners nationwide and also in the colonies. One place he was not popular, though, was in Parliament itself. During the 1768-69 session, Parliament expelled Wilkes three separate times, only to see him re-elected each time. In the third election, in February 1769, Wilkes, still in prison, won with over 80% of the vote. This time, Parliament decided to seat his opponent. Members reasoned that the losing candidate had the most votes of any qualified candidate. Opponents asked, what's the point of holding elections if you can simply seat the loser because you don't like the winner? The fact that the king and the government hated Wilkes only seemed to make him more popular with the people. An estimated 15,000 supporters demonstrated in the fields outside Wilkes's prison, demanding that authorities free him. The protesters posted a demand on the prison wall. The exact text of the note does not survive, but one reader said it, quote, talked about liberty, end quote. And another called it, quote, the raving of some patriotic bedlamite, end quote. As an interesting aside, The term patriot in England at the time referred to someone who disrupted government activities. It was an epithet, not a compliment. When authorities tore down the document, the crowd turned violent and began throwing rocks. Officials read them the Riot Act 
and called out a group of grenadiers. The soldiers eventually fired on the crowd, killing six and wounding another 15. Protesters called it the St. George's Fields Massacre. Wilkes served nearly two years in prison, making his case a major political issue for most of 1768 and 1769. While still in prison, voters elected him an alderman of the City of London. Upon his release in March 1770, they elected him Sheriff of London. Whigs in the colonies made out Wilkes to be a hero of almost mythical proportions. A popular Whig toast at the time was Wilkes and Liberty. He became the personification of the fight for basic liberties for which the colonies were also fighting. While in prison, he corresponded with colonial groups, including several Sons of Liberty organizations. A number of these colonies sent him gifts to make his imprisonment more comfortable or to assist with his legal challenges. In 1769, the South Carolina Assembly borrowed 1,500 pounds sterling from the Treasury to donate to a charity supporting Wilkes. When they later attempted to appropriate money to repay the loan, the Crown-appointed council vetoed the appropriation. This led to a standoff that prevented the colony from appropriating any taxes after 1769. The fight broadened in 1771, at which time they could pass no laws at all. This standoff lasted until the colony created a new provincial congress in 1775. While distracted by affairs in Europe and the political firestorm over Wilkes, the ministry still had to focus on the effect the colonial non-importation agreements were having on the British economy. That and other colonial resistance from rioters and political organizing that bordered on treason definitely required attention. Grafton's government could not agree on how to deal with the colonies. A sizable group, apparently including Grafton himself, favored full repeal of the Townsend Acts. They argued that a return to the status quo would return trade and end the protests over what was almost nothing in taxes. The cabinet held an informal vote in May 1769 where they narrowly rejected the idea of a full repeal. Had this close vote gone the other way, it is likely that the dispute with the colonies might have ended or at least been delayed for decades. But it did not, and the rift continued to grow. Everyone in the ministry agreed, though, that something had to be done. The more hardline members of the cabinet rejected the full repeal idea. They thought, probably correctly, that backing down a second time after the Stamp Act reversal would only make the colonies demand even more policy changes. The majority was willing to remove duties on manufactured goods. After all, they wanted to encourage export of British manufactured goods to the colonies. At the same time, they wanted to retain the tax on tea. This would make clear that Parliament had the authority to impose such duties and that the colonies would just have to respect that. Even so, they would not implement any of these changes until the following year. The administration then tried a little carrot-and-stick diplomacy. Officials leaked the discussions of the repeal to London merchants, knowing that word would quickly reach the colonies via informal lines of communication. They also let it be known that they planned to apply the Treason Act to colonists who persisted in opposing the authority of Parliament. The Treason Act dated from the reign of Henry VIII and was definitely old school. An accused traitor would be brought to London and thrown in the tower. 
If found guilty at trial, all of his family's properties would be forfeited to the king. The traitor would be hanged by the neck, then cut down while still alive. Next, he would be disemboweled using metal hooks, again while still alive. Finally, he would be beheaded, and then his body chopped into quarters and made available to the king for use as he saw fit. This only seemed to increase colonial protests. Virginia and others drafted petitions condemning the removal of accused traitors to England for trial. That was a violation of their liberties. Indications that the government might back down on the Townsend Acts the following year only encouraged the colonies to hang in there with their existing non-importation agreements. Grafton's ministry just could not reach a consensus on how to resolve the colonial problems. If his own ministry was divided, Parliament generally showed even less interest in doing anything to mollify the colonists. In January 1770, Parliament rejected Grafton's requests for an inquiry to consider the ongoing complaints of the colonies. Saying that his conciliatory approach was going nowhere, Prime Minister Grafton finally resigned his office on January 28, 1770. Lord North, leader of the hardliners, succeeded him as Prime Minister. North became only the second Tory to serve as Prime Minister, the first being the Earl of Bute. Although politics was not strictly partisan at the time, North clearly brought a more autocratic and heavy-handed colonial policy than did his predecessors. Prior to his appointment, North had not been particularly outspoken on the colonies. He had, however, voted against the repeal of the Stamp Act, and in Grafton's ministry had opposed the repeal of the Townsend Acts. With North in charge of the government, and Hillsborough still in charge of colonial affairs, Britain moved toward a much more confrontational policy with the recalcitrant colonies. I introduced Lord North a couple of episodes back, and will certainly have more to say about him in future episodes. But for now, I'll just say that this would prove to be the end of any chance of a compromise acceptable to the colonists. With that, I want to turn my attention back to America for the rest of this episode. In the last few episodes, I've been discussing mob activity, but have not really had a chance to discuss the practice of tarring and feathering. The practice, long associated with the Revolution, probably needs some explanation. Between 1768 and 1770, it became a common tactic against customs informers. Now, the practice of tarring and feathering goes back to the Middle Ages. Typically, this was not a government punishment. It was something a group of commoners did to one of their own in order to punish and humiliate them, not kill them. Many instances, therefore, may not be documented. However, the colonists did not really seem to be familiar with the practice until the 1760s. Typically, the tar used was sap from pine trees. When heated to over about 140 degrees Fahrenheit, the sap becomes liquid. Shipmakers and sailors used hot pine tar to waterproof ships, sails, and ropes, so it was a common commodity in seaports. Feathers were also readily available. Birds slaughtered for food had their feathers removed, and these would normally be used for pillows and cushions. Sometimes attackers would strip the victim applying the tar directly to his skin. This would cause painful blistering and would be extremely difficult and painful to remove, but not deadly. Sometimes they would apply the tar over the clothing, making it less painful and easier to remove, but still humiliating. 
with the tar still hot, the mob would roll the victim in a pile of feathers or simply dump a bag of feathers over him. The drying tar would hold the feathers in place all over his body. Frequently then they would carry the victim around town and subject him to public ridicule. People would often jeer, spit, throw rotten eggs, or otherwise express derision as the tormentors put the tarred and feathered victim on public display. The first known victim of tarring and feathering in the colonies was a ship's captain named William Smith of Norfolk, Virginia. In 1766, a Norfolk merchant and shipowner named John Gilchrist came to believe that Smith had reported contraband aboard one of his ships, the Vigilant. According to Smith, a group of men assaulted him, covered his body with tar, threw feathers all over him. They then carried him through the streets of Norfolk to face jeering crowds who threw stones at him. Finally, they threw him into the ocean, where he claims he would have drowned if not rescued by a passing ship. Smith also specifically named the mayor of Norfolk as participating in the actions against him. In 1768, the New England Sons of Liberty decided to use the technique to punish informants who had cooperated with the Customs Board. Now, some of the details seem to be a little hazy. In the summer of 1768, an unidentified group tarred and feathered an unnamed informant in Salem, Massachusetts. In September of that same year, in two separate instances, John Rowe and Robert Wood both received a tarring and feathering. An account of Robert Wood's punishment says that he was stripped naked, tarred and feathered, and then forced to sit on a hogshead under the Tree of Liberty in the town commons. Again, both took place in Salem, allegedly for reporting customs violations to the authorities. On September 10th, patriots in Newburyport, Massachusetts, tarred and feathered Joshua Vickery and Francis Magno. Again, the accused allegedly informed authorities about customs violations. According to one account, men placed Vickery in the village stocks for about two hours. Next, they carried him through town in a cart so that people could pelt him with rocks and eggs. His captors held him overnight and in the morning tore out his hair. They then forced him to pull a horse cart through town, again subjecting him to public attack. He and Magno, who was also stripped naked, and tarred and feathered, were then taken to jail, where they were prosecuted for breach of the peace. The arrival of soldiers in Boston in October 1768 seemed to eliminate more overt mob activities like this. The only other incident I could find for nearly a year happened in Providence, Rhode Island, on May 29, 1769. Jesse Saville was accused of providing information to the Customs House. Rather than open attack, it seems the group grabbed Seville in secret at night, covered him with turpentine and feathers, and beat him severely. I've also read accounts of a Jesse Saville being tarred and feathered in Gloucester, Massachusetts in 1770. It's not clear if this is the same event with confused facts, or a second attack possibly on the same person. Some records indicate that Seville was a customs officer, and therefore might have been the target of multiple attacks. In September 1769, Nathan Smith of New Haven, Connecticut, informs customs officials that a prominent merchant had been smuggling rum. A few weeks later, Smith found himself in the hands of a mob. They put him in a cart, carried him through town, and forced him to announce in public that he was, quote, a liar, an informer, and a pest to society, end quote. 
After this, they covered him in tar and feathers, after which they allowed him to return home. In October, in New York City, several men, one named Michener and another named Kelly, and possibly one or two more, informed authorities about some illegally imported wine. A few days later, a mob caught up with them, applied the tar and feathers, and carted them through town. Eventually, authorities were able to break up the mob and release the men. That same month, Philadelphia mobs tarred and feathered another alleged informer whose identity is not known. Local accounts say the accused was ducked, placed in a pillory, then tarred and feathered, and paraded through the streets for about two hours. On October 28, 1769, Boston finally held its first tar and feather event. George Gaylor had been a sailor aboard the HMS Liberty, which, after its capture in the Liberty riots, was now working for the British Navy to catch smugglers. After radicals sank the Liberty, Gaylor got another job on another merchant vessel, which authorities raided for smuggling. Local patriots believe that Gaylor had informed on his own ship. As a result, a mob grabbed Gaylor, stripped him, applied tar and feathers, and then carried him around town for about three hours. The mob, estimated at between 1,000 and 1,500, forced Gaylor to hold a lantern as they paraded him around town at night. The mob also demanded that all residents put a candle in their window to show support. And just in case you thought this was a voluntary thing, any windows without a candle received a barrage of rocks. As the mob carted him around town, beating Gaylor with sticks and stones, they also attacked the homes of several other Tories. They even paraded Gaylor past the customs house, where an armed sentry stood guard. They threw stones through the windows of the customs house and threatened to hoist the guard onto the cart alongside Gaylor. In the end, though, they left the frightened guard at his post. Eventually, the mob led Gaylor to the Liberty Tree, where they forced him to take an oath, promising never to inform again and thanking the mob for its leniency in not killing him. Eventually, they released him, returned his clothes, and allowed him to return home. Gaylor tried to bring charges against several of the assailants whom he recognized. According to some accounts, there was a criminal trial at which they were found not guilty, though it probably did not get to trial because a Boston grand jury would never indict. Gaylor also brought a civil suit against seven of his attackers. He sued for damages of 2,000 pounds sterling, but the case again never appears to have made it to trial. Now, some historians report another event in Boston in November where a mob tarred and feathered a man for, quote, causing a woman to be harassed by soldiers, end quote. I've really not been able to find any more details about this event, but if anybody knows more about this, please let me know. In May 1770, after the army pulled out of Boston, Owen Richards, who worked for the Customs Board, refused a bribe and tried to seize the schooner Martin. While a group of men tarred and feathered Richards, another group unloaded the Martin and speared away the contraband. Richards was held for about six hours, probably the time it took to unload the Martin, during which time the men carted him around town. Eventually, the mob set his feathers on fire, causing more serious harm. Richards survived, though, and filed a civil suit for 1,000 pounds sterling. Again, I have not been able to determine the outcome of that suit. The Sons of Liberty also took up another tactic, tarring and feathering buildings. Merchants and others who violated non-importation agreements in 1770 often found the outside of their shops covered in tar and feathers. 
This was a lesser form of attack, more vandalism than assault, but it also served as a warning to the victim that worse punishments could come if they did not change their ways. Sometimes, instead of tar and feathers, they would decorate the houses with excrement. As tensions began to subside in late 1770, we see a drop of the use of tarring and feathering. However, it will make a comeback in 1773 and 1774 after the Boston Tea Party ratchets up tensions once again. The practice continued throughout the war, usually against Tories or others who somehow objected to the Patriot movement. There are also cases well into the 1800s of its use against people who drew public condemnation for various behaviors. During this time period, though, it was never used against high-ranking officials, only informants or very low customs officials who were seen as snitches. While painful and humiliating, it was not fatal. I will mention tarring and feathering events as they arise in our timeline going forward, but I thought I had a good idea to give this background now as we enter the 1770s. Next week, we're going to move down to New York City, where locals fight with British regulars at the Battle of Golden Hill. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.